Welcome to another episode of the Hoop Talk Podcast by fans for fans. I'm Ryan. There's my guy, Jalen. What's up, everybody? This podcast is where we discuss all things basketball, so expect a lot of hot takes, debates, and true display of basketball knowledge. Let's get right into it. Before we get into it, though, we want to welcome everybody to our first episode of Season 2 today. New theme song, new cover, new topics, more guests. We have everything and more, guys. So... Everybody go hit that subscribe button before we start and everybody go follow us on Instagram at the hoop talk pod. Our topics today, NBA midseason takeaways. And then we're also going to give our predictions for the seating of the Western conference and the Eastern conference, and then also give our sleepers as well. So to start with the midseason takeaways, Jalen, what is one midseason takeaway that you have so far in the NBA season? Bro, Ryan, we were talking about this before the podcast started, but New York Knicks fans, your Knickerbockers are going crazy this season. What in the world has gotten in the water over there? They are fifth in the Eastern Conference, 19 and 18 right now. Got a first year or a first time all-star in Julius Randle, who arguably is somewhere in the top three, top five when it comes to the most improved player race. We talked about that a little bit. Um with Ian and Brooks on one of our episodes in season one. Definitely go back and check that out because we talked about a handful of guys that fall into that category of guys who have just burst on the scene. Julius Randle is definitely one of those. Coach Tom Thibodeau gets redemption in New York. Look, I know a lot of people were looking at his stint with the Timberwolves, the fact that he wasn't working with young guys like Andrew Wiggins, Carl Anthony Towns, the fact that He was also being the coach and the GM, which was pretty difficult as well in terms of his reputation because of of the whole not really making great selections. There was that whole weird Timber Bulls thing on Instagram going around with him getting guys like Taj Gibson, Derrick Rose, Joakim Noah. But, I mean, this team is playing their tail off, Ryan. They're, they're almost dead last in points scored, but they're literally at the top of the bill, first in the NBA in opponents' points per game. And they're the second best defense. They have the second best defensive rating in the entire NBA. Ryan, we're talking about guys like Julius Randle, Austin Rivers, Emmanuel Quickly. Shout out to D Rose, who's back on the squad, RJ Barrett, who's playing relatively well. I mean, this is a really, really interesting team. We're going to talk a little bit about where we did slash didn't have them in terms of our power ranking, something that we're actually going to do a separate episode on. But Ryan, how do you feel about the how do you feel about the New York Knicks, bro? They kind of hooping right now. You got some interesting Knicks takes in our season one. I think you finally got got to bust blow the dust off some of that. Well, the one thing that I said about the New York Knicks in season one was that I believe that the Carmelo-led 2012-2013 New York Knicks were better than the Oklahoma City Finals team. I still think they are, but that's a, debate, that's a debate that we'll have for another day. <laughs> but overall, the New York Knicks are legit. They're a legit playoff team with a legit all-star, with a legit head coach, with a legitimate rookie of the year candidate as well in Emmanuel quickly. But this is a New York Knicks team that is as good or can be as good as that 2012-2013 New York Knicks team with Carmelo Anthony. I think that when we think about the overall picture, I mean, none of us expected this. None of us expected this. I originally thought that the New York Knicks were a 10 seed, 11 seed, barely would miss the playoffs type of team, but I don't know what is going on this year, but the New York Knicks are a legitimate playoff team. And that's interesting because we thought Atlanta was going to be a a legitimate playoff team, but now it's the New York Knicks that are the legitimate playoff team. So this has been one of the most interesting seasons of the NBA so far. Can't wait for the second half of the season. One of my takeaways is that the Clippers should trade for Kyle Lowry. Now I said this back in episode 140, the buy or sell trade rumors episode that Kyle Lowry needs to be traded to the Clippers. If anything is holding the Clippers back, And it's apparent going into the second half of the season, they need a point guard. He provides more veteran leadership. And I think the Clippers are missing a guy who can lead the first unit on the floor while still getting a chance to shine the spotlight. 
He's also a guy that gets it done on both sides of the floor. And the Clippers, they don't need a star point guard. They don't need a flashy name like Kyrie Irving. They need somebody who can play the position and someone who can produce. Patrick Beverly has been a solid defensive guard for this team, but I'm not relying on Patrick Beverly to give me 20 points at night. Lou Williams has been the offensive spark that the Clippers have needed coming off the bench, but he's not somebody I want leading the first unit. The Clippers need somebody who can produce the point guard position. Kyle Lowry is the only guy that I can think of that could really do that for this team. No, I, I find that interesting that you feel that way about them. I mean, Clippers are, what, fourth in the West right now. Um, been playing relatively well all season. Um, I don't disagree necessarily with the idea that they need a point guard upgrade. Unfortunately, I think my bigger takeaway with that is just the fact that the Clippers are good, but they don't have anything good enough to be able to put them ahead of where they already are. They don't have anything of value they don't really have any draft picks there's a couple of guys that maybe you can look at down their bench but you have to think about a team in Toronto who I mean the only thing that would benefit them right now if they're hitting the reset button besides draft picks would be expiring contracts and although the Clippers may have a couple of those under their belt I don't know if those expiring contracts are necessarily guys that they want to ride out with the rest of the season because at the end of the day Toronto does look like a team that could be you know, a bottom four team in the Eastern Conference playoffs as a four through eight seed team. So I think it's interesting that you feel that way. Let's kind of expand upon that trade, though. Maybe not. Of course, we can't put our GM hats on and make a trade work because it's a little difficult to kind of make the money add up. But what exactly do you think Kyle Lowry would provide for the Clippers? Because we know that he's a stud. We know that he's played with Kawhi and Serge. We understand that he's an all-star level point guard. But what exactly is it about Kyle Lowry, the the player, that makes it where you feel like that's the guy that's the missing link as opposed to like maybe a guy who maybe is a little easier to acquire like uh, a Ricky Rubio, for example, who can probably run an offense at a very similar rate as a guy who can just put you in your offensive sets? And probably is a little bit easier to, to be able to, you know, grab via trade. Like, why do you think Kyle Lowry is the guy? I feel like Kyle Lowry is the guy because the Clippers are lacking a third option in their starting lineup. If you think about it overall, I'm not turning to Nicholas Batum to give me 15 points a game. I want Kyle Lowry. He's a guy who can shoot efficiently from the field, efficiently from three. He can play solid defense. This is a guy who has experience leading the first unit. He's also a former all-star as well. He's a guy that can benefit this team in terms of somebody that could lead the offense. The other thing that I thought was interesting was that, you know, you mentioned Ricky Rubio. He's been a rotational point guard almost his entire career, and he's been a solid one at that. So it's not a bad idea to throw Ricky Rubio's name in the hat because he's been a solid point guard throughout his career. But I think overall for the Clippers, it's better to get Kyle Lowry. Yeah, I think overall, I mean, at the end of the day, I feel like Kyle Lowry is the better choice. I just feel like he's the harder trade option out of the fact that no matter what it is that Toronto wants to do future-wise, I still feel as though Kyle Lowry is going to command a good amount to the point that it's going to be kind of difficult for the Clippers to make that trade. We have to remember Drew Holiday is on an expiring contract and he got traded to Milwaukee and the, the, the price was steep. It was near Anthony Davis level. Unfortunately, un, unlike the Anthony Davis trade that had so many, you know, first round picks, either in the form of players or in the form of an actual pick being that fourth, that fourth overall pick in that draft, the difference with the Clippers is they do not have that kind of ammo. They don't have those kind of prospects on their team. They don't have anybody that nearly draws the same kind of attention. So I do find it kind of interesting that that's something that we should probably keep an eye out on as further as we get further and further away from the, the way the season started and we get closer and closer to this trade deadline that's supposed to be later on in the in the um in this month because. Everything we've seen from the Clippers so far 
tells us that they're still a relatively top caliber team in the Western Conference as a playoff contender. But as we get a chance to look at the the first half of their season post All-Star break, we get to kind of sit down for these next couple of days or so um, before things really kick off. There's a couple of games later on tonight. Things really don't kick off again for the second half of the season until Friday in terms of everybody kind of getting back in their groove. These next couple of days, we're going to look at the first half of their season and kind of wonder like, yo, do they have a missing link that they need to go out and find via trade? And it's interesting. We know anything is possible now because after what we saw with four teams involved to get James Harden moved, if you really want to add a championship caliber player to your roster, you will get as many teams in the mix as humanly possible to make it all work out. If Toronto is in that same kind of category, maybe the Clippers can make a play. I think that would be really interesting considering that Kyle Lowry is a point guard who can put you over the top for one of these kind of like, you know, top level teams. And it's interesting because like you mentioned, they don't have a lot to trade for Kyle Lowry. I feel like if you, if you have to trade for Kyle Lowry, you would have to include Patrick Beverly. You probably have to include Lou Williams. It's just going to be interesting to see what you have to trade for Kyle Lowry, considering, like you mentioned, Jalen, they don't have a lot of assets. Jalen, what is your second midseason takeaway? So I try to be really optimistic with the Knicks, right? So I have to kind of flip gears, unfortunately, and go from a team that has played really well and played above expectation and flip it to a team in the Western Conference who's played very poorly and way below expectation. And that's the New Orleans Pelicans, man. I mean, 11th in the conference, 15 and 21 overall. Zion Williamson was, you know, a first-time All-Star, similar to Brandon Ingram, who was a first-time All-Star last season. But this Stan Van Gundy version of this team is just, like, super, super questionable. I mean, it's, it's interesting. Top five, so so they're top five in points per game, but they're bottom four in points allowed. It's really inter- it's a very interesting dynamic in comparison to the New York Knicks, who were opposite. They're number one in opponents in opponents' points per game, but they were nearly dead last in points per game offensively for themselves. This is one of those teams that because of the newly adopted play style that they have, right? Because now it's not Alvin Gentry. It's not that Phoenix Suns run and gun style that we feel like a guy like Lonzo Ball or a guy like Zion Williamson can thrive in. They're being forced to play a half court system that Stan Van Gundy runs and they don't have half court system players, which is kind of difficult to kind of mesh together. That's why the, the combination of Eric Bledsoe and Lonzo Ball hasn't worked nearly as well as we would have hoped. I also think that J.J. Redick is going to be a guy who's going to either be very, very high on people's trade radar or could potentially be bought out depending on what the circumstances are. So with that being the case, I don't know, man. I think New Orleans, they're going to be in another weird down year situation where things could get really ugly for them if they don't turn things around in this second half of the season. So it's going to be really interesting to see what they do. I mentioned this with the new Orleans Pelicans and it's difficult to see how this team is going to make the playoffs right now. Jalen and I joked earlier in one of our season one episodes that we thought that this was going to be a five out team where everyone was going to play along the perimeter much like the 2008 Orlando Magic team that was so successful. And it's the opposite of that. And, I mean, yeah, Zion is a great player. He's an all-star too, but I'm not sure that he is going going to be enough to really fix this team. I think that, yeah, Brandon Ingram, solid player to get back on your team. But that's another one where I feel like Brandon Ingram might be on the trade block. J.J. Redick, it's an interesting one because I mentioned that J.J. Redick was on the trade block or was a possible player to be traded. I thought, you know, him going to either Boston, Jalen, you mentioned he he might go to Philadelphia. I feel like that there's a chance that New Orleans rebuilds. They rebuild with Zion. 
as the main guy. And I feel like it's it's not necessary to keep Steven Adams. It's not necessarily it's not necessary to keep Lonzo Ball or JJ Reddick. I think that it's just better to rebuild around Zion. I think it's really interesting that you touched on the idea of trading Brandon Ingram, just because I think that when you look at what he provides, he is somebody that would be really interesting on the trade block. Now he did sign that, that extent that rookie scale extension, which makes him a lot harder of a trade piece overall, because the money is just, it's rough to match. It's a weird situation for him overall. And he, he would easily, although the talent would be there, he would easily become just as hard to trade for as a guy like Andre Drummond, for example, who people will be trading for to only have for a year in hopes of being able to re-sign him this offseason. So when it comes to a guy like Brandon Ingram, it's interesting that you feel that way about him because of the fact that I don't necessarily know what what would covet that situation in terms of being able to pull a trade off with him. Now, J.J. Redick is a little bit different because I think the circumstances add up in a way where he's somebody that's going to be a lot easier to move. So I think I think building around Zion Williamson is the right, like the right path. I just wonder if they're going to genuinely be able to blow this up the way you view, for example, and do it in a quick turnaround kind of way where they can flip their whole season around in hopes of making the playoffs before the year is over. There's a chance that they trade Brandon Ingram. I don't think that there's a, a surefire possibility that Brandon Ingram gets traded because of the, the contract that he signed. It's like, it was a huge five-year max deal contract that he deserved. And I think they trade Lonzo, trade Steven Adams, they trade Eric Bledsoe. They pretty much just trade everyone and rebuild around Zion. I think that's the best case for this team. I think the Anthony Davis led New Orleans teams. I think that's, that's over. It's done with because Anthony Davis is in Los Angeles. I think they have to market around Zion. They have to build around Zion because he's the franchise player of this team. Brandon Ingram is a solid player as well, but he's not the franchise player. It's Zion. That's who they're going to market to in New Orleans. I agree. I think that I think New Orleans is a really interesting team so far this year. They've got a lot of competition with teams like the Spurs, who are already in the playoff hunt. Teams like Memphis that are not playing any games at all. Teams like Portland that's going to hold their spot despite what everybody is thinking in terms of what they're going to do so far this season. I mean, when you look across the standings, they are going to be in trouble because there's a lot of teams that have stepped up in the right kind of way. We've already seen it from teams like the Phoenix Suns, a team that we didn't talk about, um, at least not so far, as a team that is well overachieved in comparison to what we thought they were going to do. I mean, we thought they were going to be a playoff team for sure. We definitely thought that adding Chris Paul instantly turned them into a playoff team, something they haven't been for a while. Number two overall in the Western Conference above the two L.A. teams, I don't think anybody was – I don't think there's a single person outside of Phoenix, Arizona, that put that kind of money out on a bet that said the Phoenix Suns through hat through midway through the midway point of the season will be a top two top five team in the Western Conference. I don't think there's too many people that believe that they were going to be a top two team, maybe even top five, like I said, just out of the fact that you got to think about the Clippers, the Lakers. I think the Jazz are overachieving, but you figured they would be in the mix considering their starting lineup is as crazy as it is. I thought the Nuggets were back for vengeance. And the Trailblazers, had they not been injured, I thought they would be scarier than what they are now and they're fifth in the West as it is. But, I mean, they're, they're, I mean, the thing about the way I look at, it, look at it, right, is Memphis is already in the play-in play tournament as, as of right now. They were almost going to be the eighth seed last season. The Warriors with Steph Curry, they're going to be a tough out towards the back end of the year. The Dallas Mavericks, hopefully they can start getting a lot more consistent play from Christos Porzingis, and maybe they make a trade, get a guy like Harrison Barnes back on the squad, somebody that they could definitely use as another shot creator. When you just look at some of the teams that are rebuilding or some of the teams and some of the younger teams that are around them, being like the Mavericks or the Grizz or even the Suns who have like probably overshot our expectations in, uh, in comparison to any of those other teams, the Pelicans could easily be the, the, the team on the outside looking in as one of these young teams in the NBA 
that is struggling to, to officially hit the start button. Like we thought it was going to be them getting Zion, but we haven't learned enough about them in terms of Zion being their primary piece to think that they're going to be a perennial playoff team in the near future. So the Pelicans went from being one of the best looking young franchises in the league two seasons ago to being one of those teams that we have some serious questions about their rebuilding process and where they could end up in the future. So moving on to my second takeaway from the midpoint in this NBA season, and it's not so much of a takeaway as it is a prediction. I think the Brooklyn Nets and the Philadelphia 76ers are going to the Eastern Conference Finals. Let's start with Philadelphia. I think that this is the best that Philadelphia has looked since Allen Iverson was there. And they have a legitimate MVP candidate in Joel Embiid. They have Ben Simmons, who is one of the best defenders in the league, and he could win Defensive Player of the Year. They have a new head coach in Doc Rivers that has made this team even better. And the one thing that they lacked last year was shooting, and they went for it in the draft and free agency. They drafted a great player in Tyrese Maxey, and they also drafted Paul Reed, who was a 20-10 and 10 guy in the G League, and he's also someone who can shoot the ball consistently from the field and from three. They also have Isaiah Joe, who is another great high-volume shooter for them. And they also signed two solid three-point shooters in Seth Curry and Danny Green to help them with their three-point shooting efficiency and even add them to a lineup that has other great three-point shooters in Tobias Harris and Joel Embiid, MVP candidate, like I mentioned earlier. So this team is ready for an Eastern Conference Finals run. But Brooklyn, Brooklyn, I'm just going to say Brooklyn because they have Kevin Durant, Kyrie Irving, and James Harden. All of them are are legitimate MVP candidates. They have Joe Harris, who signed a big contract. He's been one of the most consistent three-point shooters throughout his career. They made a key signing in the offseason with Landry Schmidt, providing some scoring production coming off the bench. They also have Nick Claxton, Jalen, who you mentioned could be the next Kevin Durant. Here's the other thing, though. They go out and get Blake Griffin. I'm intrigued to see how Blake Griffin is going to be used in the offense. But Jalen, you've said it before, and you said it time and time again. When healthy, Blake Griffin is a top 15 player. So this team right now has four top 15 players when they're healthy. Kevin Durant, Kyrie Irving, James Harden, Blake Griffin. This is a seven-game series that there's no doubt it's going to happen. I mean, hey, bro, I think, honestly, one of the safest predictions you can make, it definitely doesn't, you know, it's hard to say that he could, it's hard to say that it could even fall into a hot take kind of prediction, just out of the fact that both of these teams have been falling into, into the kind of circumstances that all point into this direction of clash between Titans. You know what I mean? And it's really interesting the way it all has happened. You talk about Brooklyn. Man, this is a Brooklyn Nets team that, God rest his soul, Biggie Smalls would be extremely proud of right now. Would have at least six wraps on any of these players for this team with the way they've been uh, with the way they've been producing, and just the team as a whole. I mean, you look across the board, and between these two teams, you have an NBA award caliber player somewhere in it. You know, Kevin Durant is a guy who could easily. I mean, he's easily tiptoeing. <laughs> moonwalking even into the comeback player of the year discussion with the way that he's played in the time that he's played coming off the kind of injury he's coming off of with the Achilles injury. You look at a guy like James Harden. I feel like James Harden is arguably in the MVP conversation with the way he's played since getting to Brooklyn. I understand that a lot of people are going to look at the narrative of the way James Harden acted and the way he was a non-participant, non-factor for the Houston Rockets. But we have to remember that dude was averaging double digits, a double digit assist for a Houston Rockets team. He appeared to not care about. He still could fall asleep on the court, be 30 pounds heavier than what we could have ever expected from him, walking around like Rick Ross on the court, and was still diamond out 10 to 12 assists a night for a Houston Rockets team that a lot of people view as not being that talented. You know what I mean? The island of misfit toys with guys like Victor Oladipo, who has voiced his opinion on feeling like he hasn't been able to find a legitimate home. John Wall, who's a guy who's kind of trying to restart his career after coming off of two, year, two 
year-long ending injuries that pretty much has put him out of commission long enough to the point that people almost forgot that he was a top 10 level point guard at one point. And DeMarcus Cousins is a guy who's on the shelf at the moment and potentially is going to be moved to the Lakers is one of the teams that's been mentioned, which is kind of ironic because he was just there. But overall, like James Harden has been like a very significant player for Brooklyn, especially because of the fact that he's probably played just as consistently, not probably, he has played as consistently as their other two superstars in Kyrie Irving and KD, who have both missed time. And then you look at Philly. Ben Simmons is a legitimate top two defensive player of the year candidate with the way he's played so far this season. And Joel Embiid, for most people, is leading the way, leading the charge in the MVP discussion amongst guys like Nikola Jokic, LeBron James, Damian Lillard, Stephen Curry, Kawhi Leonard, so on and so forth. So I think that this battle between these two teams I'm not going to say book it because anything can happen. I think that the Boston Celtics, shout out to Ian Evans, who uh, we're probably going to have one a lot in season two. I think the Boston Celtics are a scary team in the second half of the season, especially now that they have a healthy Kimball Walker who's played relatively well since coming back from a weird set of injuries that kind of made it where he wasn't able to produce very much at the early portion of the year. He also missed a little bit of time. I think the Bucks. I think with Giannis winning the inaugural Kobe Bryant MVP, that'll put a little bit of swag back in his step. They're going to get Drew Holiday back a lot more consistently after missing a good portion of the season with injury um, in the first half of the year. It's going to be a dogfight at the top of the East, but I don't think it's too far-fetched to say that Philly and Boston, uh, Philly and Brooklyn are in a head-to-head collision, and it's all going to come down to what happens with the seeding. And you mentioned a couple of the teams in the Eastern Conference with Philadelphia, Brooklyn, Milwaukee, and Boston. I think it's time that we move to our midseason predictions for what the one through eight seeds will look like in the East and the West. And then we are going to compare each of our lists, and then we're going to choose a sleeper. Jalen, what does your Western Conference look like? So I'm going to try to read them out a little slow just so everybody can keep up because I have two honorable mentions for this one. This one was super tough. But at, at number one, I have Phoenix being the number one overall seed going into the playoffs. Then I have the L.A. Clippers. I have the Utah Jazz, the Los Angeles Lakers, the Portland Trailblazers, the Denver Nuggets, the Golden State Warriors. And at the eighth seed, I have the Dallas Mavericks. Now, my honorable mentions, like I said, is extremely tough on me to do this, but my first honorable mention, the one that I feel is like is more likely to steal that eighth eighth overall spot from the Mavericks is the San Antonio Spurs. I think DeMar DeRozan has just been playing at too high of a level. But my second honorable mention, and this is why it made it so difficult, because I think they're just barely going to miss the playoffs again. And if that doesn't give you any hint, I'm just going to spell it out for you. It is John Morant and the Memphis Grizzlies. I genuinely think that they're going to finish somewhere between nine or 10, barely miss the playoffs. It's going to be a year where I really wish we could have seen a lot more of Jonas Valanciunas, who has been in and out of the lineup, a lot more of Triple J, who has pretty much not played at all this year, and a guy in Justice Winslow, who I was hyping up all offseason after that trade was made, and we still haven't seen any basketball from him. So I feel like, unfortunately, with those hits, even if they get those guys healthy somewhere in the second half of the season, I'm just I'm just very nervous that it's going to be too little too late. But, yeah, just to repeat, Phoenix Suns, Clippers, Utah, Lakers, Trailblazers, Nuggets, Warriors, Mavericks. So for my one through eight seeds in the Western Conference, the first seed – goes to the Utah Jazz. The second seed will go to the Los Angeles Lakers. The third seed will go to the Phoenix Suns. The fourth seed will go to the Portland Trailblazers. The fifth seed will go to the Denver Nuggets. The sixth seed will go to the Los Angeles Clippers. The seventh seed will go to the Dallas Mavericks. And the eighth seed will go to the Golden State Warriors. And my sleeper is the San Antonio Spurs especially with the way that DeMar DeRozan's been playing, especially with the young backcourt that they have of Derek White and Deontay Murray. 
Also with the new call-ups with Trey Jones and Luka Samanich, I think those two guys are going to be a dangerous duo, especially on the defensive side. So I think San Antonio is my sleeper. So for the Western Conference, my one through eight seeds again, it's Utah, it's the Los Angeles Lakers, the Phoenix Suns, the Portland Trailblazers, the Denver Nuggets, the Los Angeles Clippers, Dallas Mavericks, Golden State Warriors, honorable mention, San Antonio Spurs. All right, Ryan, so where would you like to start? You want to start at the top or you want to start at the bottom of these standings? So I'm intrigued to see why the Phoenix Suns, why you believe the Phoenix Suns will be number one over the Utah Jazz. So I think the biggest thing with the fact, the, the fact of the matter is that if you really look at a lot of the power ranking indexes that people have going up as of late, the biggest thing that stands out to me is where the Jazz are ranked in terms of, you know, strength of schedule. That's one of those things that really, it really stands out to me overall in terms of what we're talking about. And the Jazz have single-handedly the hardest schedule on the remaining half of the season. They have to see the Suns twice, the Lakers twice, Brooklyn, and then they got to see the Trailblazers. Those are the teams that stand out the most as the, some of the bigger matchups that they're going to have in the second half of the year. But according to Tankathon, they literally have the hardest, the most, the least favorable schedule remaining of the season as compared to a team in the Phoenix Suns who are right there in the middle of the pack of the entire, in the entire NBA, if not a little bit better, they're 11th. They have the 11th. I guess, best strength of schedule in their case, 11th best strength of schedule in terms of who they're going to be facing moving forward. And with that being the case, I think that's one of those things that really kind of leans in their favor overall, because remember, we're not talking about what team we think is better or what teams we think are just flat out going to be able to compete with each other in a head-to-head matchup. We're talking about how they're going to progress throughout the rest of the season and what that means in terms of their seeding at the end of the year. With that being the case, with the fact that Utah has one of the hardest schedules moving forward, I just think that with the Phoenix Suns just barely behind them, I think the Phoenix Suns will be able to usurp them with the way that they're playing. I think that they're going to be one of those teams that isn't trying to make a post-trade deadline adjustment because I think they're going to stand pat with the team that they have and ride it out for the rest of the year. I don't have any doubt that the Phoenix Suns are going to be a top three team because this team is as talented with Chris Paul as they are without him. That 8-0 playoff run in the bubble put the Phoenix Suns on the map because I feel like even before even before the 8-0 bubble run, Devin Booker was playing some of his best basketball before that. And they had Aaron Baines, who was like really one of the best three-point shooters for them before he eventually left to go to Toronto. And then they also have Ricky Rupia, who I mentioned earlier was a solid rotational point guard for them. But this, this Phoenix Suns team this year is legit. Like they are as legit as the Steve Nash, Amari Stoudemire teams of the late 2000s, early to early 2010s, because they have Devin Booker, who was arguably an MVP candidate. Um, Devin Booker is one of the best shooting guards in the entire league. I think, Adding Chris Paul makes this team better. If you saw his effect on the Oklahoma City Thunder last year, they had a slow start to the season, but they were able to pick it up midway through and make the playoffs. Same thing with this year. Phoenix has kind of a slow start to the season, and then they pick it up midway through, and it looks like this team's going to be a top three seed in the playoffs. This team is as talented as the Steve Nash, Amari Stoudemire-led teams, especially when you have a Coach of the Year candidate in Monty Williams, the candidate for Executive of the Year in James Jones. This team is one of the best-built teams in the Western Conference. In terms of Utah, I know that they have the best record in the league and the toughest schedule. Seeing how this team has played up to this point in the season, I don't think anything's going to change. I think that they will sit at the top of the standings with arguably one of the best shooting guards in the conference. Like I mentioned with Devin Booker, this is another one in Donovan Mitchell. They have defensive player of the year candidate in Ruby Gobert. 
And they also have coach of the year candidate Quinn Snyder. So this is another team that I feel like if they could put together some wins against some of the top teams that they have left to play, what do they have to lose? What do they have to lose? Especially considering that if they're able to get the first seed, when's the last time that Utah had the first seed? It's been a while, right? And this, this team is as talented as we think they are, and they're, they're even more talented because they're healthy. The one big reason why they struggled was injuries, especially losing Bojan Bogdanovic. I said before the season began, they get Bojan Bogdanovic back, this team's going to be dangerous because he adds another scoring option to a team that's already filled with scoring options. So this team is dangerous. Okay, so I think let's take that and segue, right? So you're talking about the idea of injuries and you were talking about a team that, you know, has been that has struggled beforehand and kind of bounced back. Okay, let's look at it in reverse. The Lakers spent a lot of the first half of the season pretty much intact, right? No COVID losses, nothing in terms of really many postponements, if any. Then they had that weird little stretch where they were missing out on Dennis Schroeder and Anthony Davis. And then the report came out that Anthony Davis is going to be out for about a month. That's That was about a week or two ago. So that's still going to put him about two or two to three weeks or so out past the All-Star break. You still have them at number two, as opposed to me, who doesn't feel nearly as high on them, but not super low on them either. Because at the end of the day, they have LeBron James, and I feel like that has a lot to do with being able to keep them afloat. But Anthony Davis was a defensive anchor for that team, and they're going to be missing out for him, missing out on him for a while. And they struggled in those 10 or so games where he didn't play. Now, I know Dennis Schroeder was also missing time, too, so you can factor that in as well. But they struggled a lot without Anthony Davis in the lineup. Why is it that you still have them as the number two team going into the Western Conference playoffs, considering that from a schedule standpoint, they're going to be going into a lot of these games without their second best player? So I believe they're number two, mainly because of LeBron James. I think LeBron is able to put a team on his back and carry them to the playoffs. I mean, he's done it before. I think that when they get Anthony Davis back, they're going to make that late season push that I think they're going to make. Obviously, I think without him, they're going to finish at five or six because this team is not as good without Anthony Davis, especially without Dan Schroeder either, considering that last year, one of the true holes in the offense was the point guard position. They didn't have a true point guard to run the offense. Dan Schroeder was that guy for them. and He's been out. Now, if we think about, Anthony Davis, he's the defensive anchor for this team. He himself is an MVP candidate. So you pretty much lost another MVP candidate for a month, you said, right? You lose the defensive player of the year candidate for a month. Who's going to fill that role? You have Montrez Harrell there to fill that role. You have LeBron James, arguably the best player in basketball right now. And he's also the most consistent player in his entire career. The late season push that I expect them to make, I think they're going to make mainly because they get Anthony Davis back. Okay. I mean, that's hard to argue. I think the main thing is that you think when he gets back healthy, they'll turn the Jets back on and aim for a top, a, a top seed in the Eastern Conference. I mean, in the Western Conference, I apologize. I think the biggest thing that stands out to me overall with that is just whether or not they're going to be able to turn that switch on. This Western Conference is a lot different than even what it looked like last year. And we were saying that that, that the Western Conference was – a completely different animal than what we than what anything we think LeBron James has faced, you know, up till this point. And he was able to overcome it then. I find it interesting that you even think that they would gun for a top seed in the Western Conference, just out of the mere fact that, like, I don't know if this is the caliber of team that necessarily needs like home court advantage, if that's something that even is going to be beneficial. Um, I think at the end of the day. I think the Lakers are going to be a team that is going to face a lot of losses early due to Anthony Davis being out. And I think that that's going to be one of those things where once it comes time for them to play catch up, I don't necessarily know if they're going to be gunning for a top seed. I think they're going to be focused more so on being able to rest their guys. A lot of older guys on this roster getting some significant minutes where I think that there's a chance that they might kind of lay it down in the fourth seed 
might not be completely folding like a lawn chair, but it's enough to say that, you know, they're just trying to coast into the playoffs without doing too much. But one of the teams that I feel like is not going to be coasting into the playoffs is the Los Angeles Clippers. And you have them in your bottom four. Before we move on to the Eastern Conference, I feel like this is one of our only other big differences is that I have the Clippers in the top two and you have the Clippers in your bottom three. So why do you feel like the Clippers are going to fall off completely from the four seed right now to eventually becoming a team that, what, just kind of not barely gets into the playoffs, but is going to be hovering around those bottom seeds in the Western Conference? So the main reason why I feel like the Clippers are going to, to fall into the bottom four seeds of the Western Conference is mainly because I don't think they have nearly as much talent as they did last year. When we, when we were talking about the Los Angeles Clippers last year, we talked about them as one of the most loaded teams in terms of depth in the NBA. That was one of the things that was really impressive was that they had multiple lines that they can go with. They had 15 guys who all could get solid minutes. They don't have that this year. And for me, even when we think about the fact that, you know, Lou Williams is giving them that spark off the bench, like I mentioned earlier, that they need. They are getting some solid play from their center, Vika Zubak, who has been given more minutes because of Montrez Harrell's departure to the other Los Angeles team. But this really just falls on the fact that they don't have a point guard. I think that because they don't have a solid third scoring option, it's really not going to be beneficial considering that what we saw in game seven last year or last season against the Denver Nuggets, it really would have helped that they, they had a third scoring option because Kawhi was struggling. Paul George had a bad game. Lou Williams didn't have a good game either. So it's hard for me to have faith in the Los Angeles Clippers when what I saw last year in the playoffs was it was bad. Now, I, have, I understand that last year is a different season. This year is a different year. But I'm not sure if I can trust the Los Angeles Clippers in the playoffs going forward, considering that this is a team that historically cannot make it past the second round. I, I found a lot of your take kind of interesting just out of the mere fact that it's a lot of revisionist history. I mean, the big thing is you're talking about, you know, their inability to get past the second round. That has a lot to do with their historical fronts. I understand that Chris Paul led teams with Blake Griffin, DeAndre Jordan, so on and so forth. There's other teams prior that come up to mind as well. But I don't know, man. That's that's kind of hard to just ride on all of that by saying they're going to fall from four all the way down to seven because of their point guard play. Like at the end of the day, Paul George has been playing relatively well as a point forward for them, averaging between four and five assists a game. Kawhi Leonard has been a dynamic offensive scorer next to Paul George. Nick Nicholas Batum is an underrated facilitator within their lineup. A guy like a, a guy like Serge Ibaka has been playing way better valuable minutes than Montrez Harrell did. And honestly, even though from a regular season standpoint, maybe he won't project as well, and maybe that's something to lean on, I still think if we're talking about a playoff push, I trust Serge Ibaka better in the playoffs than I do Montrez Harrell, considering that his skill set is a lot more set or more uh, applicable to what half-court basketball is going to look like, where you can't clog lanes and do certain things that Montrezl Harold does when playing next to a guy like a Vika Zubov. I think the other thing is too, like at the end of the day, we're talking about seeding. I understand your lack of trust in them from a playoff standpoint and that bad taste in your mouth, <laughs> sweat, make you sweat like you took down arsenic. I feel you, but we're talking about the regular season. And if there's any team that I feel like is going to play with a chip on their shoulder in the regular season, there's any team that I feel like has already been playing with a chip on their shoulder during the regular season. It's been the Clippers. So for me, I think that in the second half, the reason why I think they're going to make such a such a push towards the second seed in the Western Conference is because I think they're still trying to prove to the rest of the league, as well as a lot of the NBA fans, that they're a legitimate contender in the Western Conference. I think falling down to seventh would only be a detriment to their psyche going into the into the conference playoffs as opposed to having a really good push going into the conference playoffs by being the second best team in the West. 
So I think if we're looking at it from a, from a regular season standpoint, if I would look at the Lakers and I look at the Clippers and say, who do I think is more likely to want to make a push in the regular season for one of those top two seeds? I feel like the Clippers need it more. They need more validation. They're the team that needs the, needs the best takeaways from the regular season going into the playoffs. They're the team that needs to build the most continuity which is something they talked a lot about after their playoff series with Denver not having it. So they're not going to sit guys nearly as much. And they've already pulled away from doing that. They The load management thing has not been nearly the kind of issue it was last season. But there's any team that I think needs to make a, a, a legitimate playoff push as one of those top two seeds out of the two L.A. teams, I feel like the Clippers are more likely the team that needs it more, considering they're the team that has the most to prove. That's the thing. When you say they need it more last year, I felt like they needed it more because it was, it was the first year that they had Kawhi Leonard. It was the first year they had Paul George this year. It's not the same because of what we saw last year. There were were chemistry issues on the floor between Kawhi Leonard, Paul George and other players on the Clippers. But I think the other issue I have with this regular season team is that they simply don't have enough scoring to beat a team like the Los Angeles Lakers. I don't think that overall I'm going to pick the Los Angeles Clippers as a team to win games over top Western Conference teams. Like right now, Phoenix, Los Angeles Lakers, the Utah Jazz, Portland Trailblazers. It's difficult for me to put the Clippers in the top four, considering that, yes, they're a great regular season team. They don't have the same amount of offensive production that they had last year. I think that, yes, Serge Ibaka is a great defensive power forward. And in some cases, he's even better than Montrez Harrell. But overall, a couple of factors. It's the lack of a point guard, the lack of offensive production outside of Kawhi and Paul George in the lineup. So there's, there's a couple of factors that I think are factoring into why I don't have as much faith in this Clippers team as I did last year. Now, if you're talking about validation, yeah, they need, they need as much validation as they could possibly get because they're trying to be the best team in Los Angeles. But until LeBron leaves Los Angeles, they aren't going to be the best team. Okay. I mean, I think, it's, I think we can agree to disagree on the circumstance. I, just, I, I think maybe it's just me still believing in the Clippers a lot more than you do. You obviously still have a lot you know, more bitter of a taste in your mouth left by the circumstances of what happened last season, which is completely understandable. A lot of people are not picking them to be a championship caliber team strictly off of what we saw last year. So I think we can agree agree to disagree. I think that although they're not a better offensive team than what they were last year, the, the ratings will tell you that they're a better defensive team than they were last year without falling off that much offensively. They were 13th in opponents points per game last season. They're six in opponents points per game this year. They were like, second in offensive uh second or third in offensive rating uh this year they're like third in offensive rating but in terms of points per game I think they were like second or third this year they're like seventh so like they haven't dropped off significantly from an offensive standpoint and they've improved defensively so I feel like although they're missing out on that end they've made up or they've made up for it on the other end but like I said we can agree to disagree because at the end of the day I feel as though it is you kind of are going to be on the fence. There's two camps when it comes to the Clippers, and it just depends on what your faith is on them bouncing back from last season. You have the faith that they won't, and you feel like that was indicative of what that team just is, as opposed to me who thinks with the new regime and the new circumstances that they're under, that maybe they'll be able to bounce back and be a little bit better. Fair enough to be able to, you know, take a look at. I think the comment section will be very interesting when it comes to the Clippers, considering... They are a very polarizing team. Moving on to the East. Jalen, who are your top eight teams in the Eastern Conference? So we're going to start out with the Brooklyn Nets. Then we have the Milwaukee Bucks, the Philadelphia 76ers, Ian's Boston Celtics, the Miami Heat, the New York Knicks, the Indiana Pacers, and rounded out with the Charlotte Hornets. And my honorable mention for them, again, torn between two teams. The team that I think is more likely to take the Hornets' spot is the Toronto Raptors, and that's based on whether or not they keep Kyle Lowry. If they keep Kyle, I think they can make a push for that eighth seed. If they don't, 
they're going to be one of those teams on the outside looking in. And obviously, obviously, we know who the other team is. The Chicago Bulls with Zach Levine. We obviously know that with a second-half push, if they're able to maybe move a guy like Thaddeus Young for some young pieces that can produce for them, maybe get a little bit more production out of a guy in Patrick Williams. Now that Zach Levine has been a first-time All-Star, he's really going to be playing with some swag, kind of similar to a guy like Jason Tatum, who came out like a chicken with his cut with his head cut off last season coming off of the all-star game i think kobe white he's a guy who came up really good at the second half of the uh of the season last year i think he has the potential to be in that same circumstance this season so i think the chicago bulls are another team that could be somewhere on the outside looking in and it's going to depend on a lot of factors towards those bottom four teams um in the seating between the knicks pacers and um and hornets those three teams in particular are the teams that kind of have to hold up. And then I think where the Raptors end up is going to tell us a lot about what the Bulls are going to be able to do as well. But just to repeat, Brooklyn Nets one, Bucks two, 76ers three, Celtics four, Heat five, Knicks six, seven is the Pacers, and eight is the Hornets. So for my Eastern Conference top eight, number one, Philadelphia 76ers, number two, the Brooklyn Nets, Number three, the Milwaukee Bucks. Number four, the New York Knicks. Number five, the Miami Heat. Number six, the Boston Celtics. Number seven, the Atlanta Hawks. Number eight, the Chicago Bulls. And my sleeper is the Charlotte Hornets. Interesting. Okay, so instead of starting at the at the top, like we did with the other, with the with the Western Conference. Man, let's just tackle this middle because you really caught my eye with this one, Ryan. See, the Nets, 76ers, and Bucks, that one I feel like no matter what interchangeable lineup you put it in, I feel like that one is understood. But you feel like the New York Knickerbockers are going to hold it down and maintain a top four seed in the Eastern Conference? against teams like the Celtics and the Heat. What has you so hype on the Knicks? I know we talked about them earlier. I know that they're a feel-good story that has definitely been a surprising team. But what the heck is up with the Knicks? I'm going to be honest. I think they're a legit team. I was waiting for this team to be as good as they were in 2012 and 2013. But this team is as good as we think they are. With new head coach Tom Thibodeau, all-star Julius Randle, with the way that they've been playing, you said that they were – they were one of the weaker offensive teams, one of the best defensive teams is actually one of the best things about their season so far is that even though they're not scoring a lot of points, they're getting it done on the defensive side as being one of the best defensive teams. I think when it comes to the New York Knicks, it's plain and simple. This team is a playoff team. And I hope people in New York are very happy right now because their team is going to go back to the playoffs for the first time since the 2012, 2013 Carmelo Anthony led New York Knicks team. So this team has that capability of ending up going to the second round and making some noise in the playoffs. I think it's really interesting that you have them there just out of the fact that ESPN would kind of support the idea of them being able to make a kind of decent run. They're middle of the pack, like tied at 16 for strength of schedule moving into the second half of the year. That's really good for a Knicks team that really kind of could use that momentum in the second half to make a good enough run to maintain playoff position. I think it's interesting that you have them as a top four team, but I don't think that leaving them out of the playoffs will be smart either. So I'm kind of glad that you shot high on them rather than aiming low and completely thinking that they're just going to fall off because they're the Knicks. I understand that's a very easy concept to adopt in this day and age, that the Knicks are the Knicks, they're going to fall off, and all will be normal as usual. But the Knicks are for real this year. I don't know if they're the fourth seed in the East. I put them at six for a reason. I genuinely think that their defense is going to hold up. But unless they make a splash trade for a guard who can give them some good minutes offensively as a starter, I think it's going to be kind of rough for them to be able to assert themselves in the top level. Now, if they make the trade that I've seen rumored around with a guy like Victor Oladipo, you put a guy like Victor Oladipo next to a guy like R.J. Barrett, and they still are be able to maintain that movement with a guy like Julius Randle down low, now we might be saying something. I think Emmanuel quickly has been really interesting. I think getting Derrick Rose has been really nice. I even think that if they don't trade for Victor Oladipo and they keep things as is, they still have a chance to maintain their playoff position as middle of the playoffs with a fifth seed where they're at right now. 
just merely off the fact that they've just been scary consistent. Like, it's hard to argue. Like, they haven't been great, but they haven't been terrible. They lock up. They play really good defense. And because they're so elite defensively, it's hard to argue that they're going to be in the mix for a playoff spot because they're going to be in every game every single night. Now, another team that I want to talk about in the Eastern Conference that I find really interesting for this one is you slept on the Pacers, Ryan. And we, we, we've talked about this multiple times. And normally it's me. Normally it's Jalen's fault. But this time, instead, you have the Hawks and the Bulls and the Hornets all making crazy runs that are going to put them in the Eastern Conference playoffs while believing that the Indiana Pacers are going to completely fall off the map. Now, we do remember T.J. Warren could potentially play sometime later on this season, and they are going to get Karis LeVert back within the next couple of weeks. At least that's what has been reported. So why do you think that the Indiana Pacers are completely out of the mix as opposed to some of these other young gun teams like the Hawks, Bulls, and Hornets who have shown us a little something but can't necessarily def- or ne- or have it necessarily, I'll say, define themselves as playoff caliber teams as compared to an Indiana team who every time we say you guys aren't that good ends up as like the fourth seed in the Eastern Conference. Why are you sleeping on Indiana, Ryan? I'll be honest. I don't think Indiana has enough talent on their team as compared to the eight or nine teams that we mentioned before this. Let's start with Indiana just to begin with. I know they had DeMontis Sabonis, all-star MVP candidate, Kara Silver, great player, underrated shooting guard. I think that TJ Warren's a great player. He showed us in the bubble that he's bubble TJ Warren. We know how talented of a player that he is. It just comes down to experience. I think overall, too, with a first-year head coach, not a lot of playoff experience on the team overall, loss of Victor Oladipo, I think it's really made Sabonis grow into that number one option role. I just think overall, if we're talking about Indiana, I don't think I would have enough faith in them to win a seven-game series against a team like the Miami Heat, like the Milwaukee Bucks. If they end up making the playoffs, it's either going to be a seven or eight seed in the play-in tur- in the, in the play tournament. I think I have more faith in Chicago mainly because Zach Levine has been one of the best players in the league. Atlanta, I know they struggled, but they have a lot of talent on that team where I feel like they're going to go deep in games with guys scoring more than 25 points a game. I'm talking about Trey Young, Danilo Gallinari, who's been consistently one of the best three-point shooters. Chris Dunn hasn't been getting a lot of play time mainly because he's been hurt. But I think that with the new coaching change, you bring in Nate McMillan, who I've not been the biggest fan of considering he can't make it past the first round. But this is another thing where, you know what, maybe new team, new situation might benefit the Atlanta Hawks, Nate McMillan. And I would trust uh, Nate McMillan, who's been to the playoffs before, more than a first-year head coach. I hear you. I hear you. I I think all your points are pretty interesting. I just think that you're talking about the experience of the coach, but not the players. You know, Malcolm Brogdon, legit. DeMontis Sabonis, legit. TJ, if he comes back, legit. Karras, legit. Jeremy Lamb, who's played really well since coming back from injury, really good. TJ McConnell was one steal away from making history a couple weeks ago. Very interesting at the point guard spot. The Holiday Bros. Very interesting rotational pieces. I understand that maybe they don't have anybody that you would mark as elite on their team, but Miles Turner is a defensive player of the year candidate as well. Some would argue that Malcolm Brogdon is having a better year than DeMontis Sabonis, despite the fact that he was the one who made the all-star game. I just think as an overall unit, I love that you put the Bulls in the playoffs, but I don't know if the Bulls are better than Indiana. I love that you put the Hornets in the playoffs, but I don't necessarily know if we're comparing experience or are we talking about the Hornets in comparison to the Indiana Pacers? That one's kind of tough to me. And then when it comes to the Atlanta Hawks, I do feel that there, there is an argument to be made that there's a tale of two seasons to be said. Because like you said beforehand, Chris Dunn, barely any playing time. Rondo, barely any playing time. Bogdanovich has been a guy who missed big time in the early half of the season. We're hoping to see a lot more of him in the second half of the year. Same thing with Danilo Gallinari, who didn't get a lot of playing time early on. Clint Capella is finally in full flow 
after kind of missing the early, early stretches of the season. John Collins could be a guy that maybe catches some fire considering that he's due for a contract soon. And if he's not moved at the trade deadline, he's going to be playing for some bread. Like, I, I agree that Atlanta might be the scary, sneaky team out of this group, but I don't know if I can say the Bulls and the Hornets are better than Indiana, but I see what you mean, though. Indiana is not walking around with a player like Zach Levine. That's hard to argue. But I do think Indiana's walking around with a squad that's comparable to the Charlotte, to the Charlotte Hornets, if not a little bit better. And that's where I think my disconnect would be. But if you're saying that those two have to play in, have to do a play-in tournament-style situation where they fall in as the ninth and the eighth seed in the in the in the later store in the later parts of the Eastern Conference regular season, and you say it's one game to go to the playoffs. I have to be honest. I do think yeah, you can argue that it's a toss-up because both of those teams are very interesting. But I think Indiana slept on, and I'm gonna stop messing with them. I think you know if we're talking about experience, coaching, talent, I would trust Indiana in a different situation. I think that if they still had Nate McMillan, I would pencil them in as a four or five seed, considering that that's what they've been for the past couple of years. If we're putting talent to talent, coaching to coaching experience to experience, Indiana doesn't match up with Milwaukee. Indiana does not match up with Brooklyn. Indiana doesn't match up with Philadelphia. And if they're slated to be an eight seed like we think they are, they aren't going to fare well against a team like Philadelphia or Brooklyn. I don't think Atlanta is either, though, Ryan. So that one's kind but, of a toughie, bro. I mean, if we're talking we're talking about towards the seeding, like I think right. Indiana fares well with Atlanta and them, though, like – we understand first-round exit. Like, we got you. Yeah. But I think Atlanta's a first-round exit, too. I think Charlotte's a first-round exit, too. I, I think, if we're again, I, I know you're talking a lot about the playoffs, but if we're talking about regular season racing, I mean, I think all three or four of these teams are comparable in a way where it's anybody's game moving forward. But, I mean, like you said beforehand, Indiana's in a really weird position because they've been able to make the playoffs and overachieve, un- overachieve under Nate McMillan. So for all I know, I have Indiana as the seventh team. I'm not, hey, I'm not sitting there saying they can't be had. Like they're seventh. They could easily fall to eighth, be knocked out in the play-in, whatever the circumstances is. It could be the Atlanta Hawks with Nate McMillan who do the dog, who do the dirt and get the job done. So it's really interesting to see that. So I mean, I I feel like it's arguable. Like I said, I'm personally just not sleeping on Indiana anymore. So I can't not have them in the playoffs, but I can see why you do have them on the outside looking in. But, Ryan, before we close out the podcast, you know there's one team we can't not talk about. It's Ian's Boston Celtics, and he wants to hear what the heck you have to say about having them as a bottom-level team in the Eastern Conference, having them completely fall off from this fourth seed that they're currently floating at. So why you got the Celtics so low? If they have a great second season, then, yes, it'll be a, or a, sec, a great second half to the season. Then it'll be a tale of two seasons. But – the way that they've been playing right now, the lack of experience on the bench, the fact that it's really come down to Jalen Brown, the fact that Kem- that Kemba Walker has been in and out of the lineup with injuries, the fact that Jason Tatum, who has been a, an all-star, he's been injured early in the season as well. They're going to lose a lot of games down the stretch, especially if they're if they're not healthy. I know I've been mentioning making a lot of playoff references and how teams how I think teams are going to do in the playoffs based on the seeding, but if we're talking about Boston, I don't, I don't know how this team is going to do in the second half of the season or how this team is going to perform in the second half of the season, especially with Kemba Walker not healthy. Now, Kemba Walker is healthy, and he is coming back for the second half of the season, and I think he will be a huge addition to this lineup when he comes back. But would you, would you trust Boston's bench is the real question, and I don't trust them. I've said it multiple times they don't have enough experience. They don't have enough production. The guys who they drafted in the 20, 2019 NBA draft, Tremont Waters, Carson Edwards, Taco Fall, they're not, they're not producing as much as we thought they would. And it's going to cost Boston if they make the playoffs. And see, Ryan, this is going to be one of those where I don't give you nearly as much pushback as the other teams, bro. I got to be honest. This is one of those where as much as I feel very high on the Boston Celtics, your bench argument is instantly where I have to kind of zip it because it's one of those things where 
Robert Williams, we haven't really been able to see as much production from him as we'd like to. Tristan Thompson has been like a very like interesting signing for them considering he was supposed to address the big man position and he hasn't really given them a whole lot. He's had some flashes here and there, but hasn't been that great. Peyton Pritchard has been a much, much better producer than Jeff Teague was, which makes that signing look clownish at this point. My biggest thing that I would maybe say and the reason why I think that Boston will be able to rebound is because the same way you felt very strongly about the Lakers being able to hold and stand pat and then move forward with Anthony Davis when he comes back healthy, I can say the same thing about the Boston Celtics with Marcus Smart, who I feel like is their impact player who hasn't been around for a little while. And I feel like when he comes back, he's going to be the spark plug for that team that glues everything back together the way we know he can as a locker room presence, as a real guy who brings the best out of their roster. And when he comes back, he's going to be the one that kind of turns all the engines on for everyone else and they fire on full cylinders. So other, but when we're talking about their bench, you got me, Ryan. You got me. The bench is questionable. That's that's where it gets dicey. Jason Tatum is legit. Uh, Jalen Brown, legit. Kemba Walker went healthy. He's a problem. But once you get past that, there's a lot of question marks, a lot of interesting takeaways as to who you're going to be able to look at down the stretch to play big minutes for them and who we're going to be seeing close games for them. Because right now, I think in that guard area, even counting Kimba, I think that in that one-two spot, you have your gripes about what you think they're going to be able to do during the regular season in terms of being able to close out games. Because you know throughout the time frame with guys like Kimba and Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum on the floor, they're going to be fine. But what do they do in those minutes without those guys? Are they going to be spending a lot of these games trying to come back from behind because their bench can't hold a lead? Or are they going to be able to get some competent play, especially from the guard position, and have some of these top-level score guys close these games out and get some dubs? We don't know. So, like I said, Ryan, I think you got me on that one. But Boston, we got to see what they do at the trade deadline in terms of getting that bench shirt up. So transitioning to our question of the day for our fans, what teams do you believe could be sleepers in the Eastern Conference and Western Conference to make the playoffs. This has been a great episode today on the Hoop Talk podcast. Of course, make sure when you subscribe to us on Apple, you rate our podcast five stars and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcast. We'll see you guys next episode. Peace.